Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agricultural literacy discussion. This podcast is brought to you by New York Agriculture in the Classroom and the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hello, my name is Chrissy Rhodes from the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation and I will be your Iowa host today. Today's episode focuses a lot on sustainability. We'll be first hearing from a pig farmer named Mike that will explain some of the ways that he tries to keep their operation sustainable. Then we will hear from a middle school social studies teacher named Beth that uses food, agriculture, and sustainability as tools to understand our global society. So first up, let's listen to what Mike has to say. My name is Mike Postian, and I'm a sixth generation farmer. I farm with my family in eastern Iowa, and we we raise hogs, and we also grow corn and soybean. I grew up on the farm, so I've been farming ever since I was a little kid, um, but I actually spent some time off of the farm. Um, I went to college and studied microbiology, and I got interested in that, and so I ended up getting my PhD in microbiology, and I did research on animal diseases to try to understand how to protect animals from different viruses and bacteria that can make them sick. So. I worked on that for about 10 years or so, and then when my kids were very young, my wife and I decided that it was a good time to move back to the farm. Um, My wife is also from a farm, and and we felt strongly that we wanted our kids to have the opportunity to grow up on a farm, and it ended up being a good time for us to to make the transition back, and and so been farming with my family again for the last 10 years or so. Can you tell us a little bit about your farm? My farm was originally started by my great-great-great-grandfather, Frederick, who came over from Germany and built the house that I grew up in and that my parents still live in. Um, and that was, that was over 150 years ago. So I'm fortunate to be in a position where uh, my family has been farming for a while and I had the opportunity to, to join them. And so currently I farm with uh, my wife and uh, my, my parents and I have an uncle and cousin who are involved and, and we have some non-fa- non-family employees who work with us as well. We're a farrow to finish uh, farm so that means we have uh, pigs that are born on our farm and live their entire lives on our farm and then we sell them when they um, get big enough to go to market um, and then we also grow corn and soybeans. All of the corn that we grow on our farm uh, gets fed to our hogs and then the, we take the manure from our hogs and we use that to fertilize uh, the crops. And so it works out to be a very sustainable system where we can, we can use our crops to feed our animals and our animals help feed our crops. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about the sustainability piece? Yeah, sure. That's, that's something that's very important to us. Um, you know, we're, we're a multi-generational farm and, and, and our goal is to make sure that the farm is viable for future generations. And so part of that means we need to take care of the land that we farm and make sure we leave it in better condition than, than we found it in. And so, so to meet some of those goals, we're always looking at what we can do to, 
to make um, the ground we farm more resilient, to build uh, the value of, of the soil so that it, it's more um, resilient in the face of weather challenges like droughts or floods and, and things like that. So, so we're always trying to figure out how we can improve and get better. Um, so one of the things that we've implemented um, over the last six years or so is, is we've um, been planting more and more cover crops on our farm. So that means once, uh, once we harvest the corn or the soybeans, um, then we immediately go back and seed a cover crop down in the fields. And the idea is to keep something growing in the soil uh, as much as possible. Um, that way we have something growing in the soil that can help um, capture any nutrients that might still be in the fields and make sure they don't leave the fields. Uh, it also helps prevent soil erosion. We want to keep the soil in place and not have it wash away. Um, and then um, it also helps to manage the, the water, the amount of water that's in the soil. So for instance, uh, this year was very wet in the spring when we were trying to plant and we found that the fields that have cover crops growing in them um, were, were in much better condition to plant. That's been one of the, the newer things that we've implemented on our farm and then we're continuously looking at the, uh, the other things that we do on our farm to see if we can improve. Um, for instance, using the manure from our hogs to fertilize our crops, we, we test our soil to see what nutrients are available and then we test the manure to see what nutrients are in the manure and we match that up so that we're placing exactly the right amount of nutrients into the field that our crops can utilize. We don't want to place uh, any more than we need to because there's a chance that, that those extra nutrients could end up getting washed out of the field and so so we try to match that up as closely as possible and, and also try to place the nutrients you know in the right place at the right time in the right amount um, to try to be as efficient as possible. Yeah you mentioned about applying the manure in the correct way. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about how your family applies the manure, when that is, how that works? Yeah, sure. So manure is a very valuable organic fertilizer. Um, you know, a lot of people just think it's uh, think of it as a waste product, but actually it, it's a terrific uh, fertilizer. In, in many ways, it's superior to, um, you know, synthetically produced fertilizers. And so we really want to make sure we're getting as much value out of that as we can. And, and so one of the ways we do that is we make sure that we are only applying it to the field at, at, under the right condition. So all of our pigs are raised um, in barns, and, and in those, those barns, there's a cement pit under those barns that collects the manure during the year. And, and that's to make sure that that manure stays, stays right there and doesn't run off anywhere and, and, and things like that. And that way we can store it there until um, the fall when soil temperatures are below 50 degrees. Um, that's important because once the soil gets below 50 degrees, uh, the, the microbes in the soil that break down the nutrients in the manure and, and make them prone to, to leaching or leaving the field, uh, those microbes aren't very active once the soil gets cold enough. And so, so we wait until the soil is cool enough before we start applying manure. And then when we do apply manure, we're in injecting it directly into the soil. And that's to make sure, again, that that manure stays right in place there in the field and doesn't have a chance to uh, wash off if it rains or anything like that. Um, and so that way we feel like we're able to capture um, as much value out of that manure as possible.
it sounds like there's a lot of technology and things that you're using on your farm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, we're, we're always interested in, in seeing how new technology could, could help us do a better job on our farm. Uh, some of the newer um, environmental controllers that we've put into our barns, um, they, they do a really nice job of, of keeping our pigs comfortable. Um, you know, that's our first priority is to make sure that whatever the weather is outside, we want our pigs to be perfectly comfortable in our barns. And so when it's, when it's hot out, um, the, the controllers can turn on more fans to cool the pigs off. They can even sprinkle water on them if we need to. And when it gets um, cold out, then we have heaters that, that always keep the temperature exactly where the pigs like it. Because if, if the pigs are too hot or too cold, they're uncomfortable, and, and we want to make sure that they're um, perfectly comfortable every minute of every day. So some of these controllers now, you can access them over the internet. And so, for instance, we're out in the field um, planting our crops or harvesting our crops. We can pull up our phone and check what the conditions are in our barns and make sure that everything's um, exactly right for the pigs at all times. So that's another way that we can kind of always keep an eye on our livestock, even when we don't happen to be inside the barns. So it's been very helpful and I think I think there's going to be more advances in that area so yeah it's very exciting about uh, the, the technology that's being developed for agriculture I really feel like it has a chance to help us do a better job as farmers and and um, do a better job taking care of our livestock and and do a better job of of growing our crops in a, in a sustainable way Cool. Speaking of making sure the pigs have exactly what they need, can you talk a little about what they eat and what their diet looks like? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so pigs are monogastrics, and so that means they have a single stomach, just like humans do. And so what we feed them is, is a diet that's been specially formulated um, exactly for them. A pig on our farm uh, will, over the course of six months, will probably eat about seven or eight different kinds of, of rations. So we're constantly adjusting that based on the age of the pig, and we even adjust it a little bit based on whether the pig is male or female. So the primary ingredient um, in pig feed is corn, of course. That, that can take up about half of the diet. The next um, ingredient would be soybean meal. And then the next one would be uh, DDGs, or dried distiller's grains. So that's a byproduct from ethanol fermentation, where corn is utilized to to make ethanol. A byproduct of that is the DDGs and that we found that to be a good fiber source for the pigs. Those are the biggest ingredients by weight and then once you go down from there though there's many other things that go into it. Um, there's a few amino acids that we balance out, a little bit of lysine, a little bit of tryptophan, a little bit of methionine, um, a little bit of salt goes in there and then um, some trace vitamins and minerals and, and things like that. So it's all, it's all carefully formulated, and it's something uh, about four times a year we meet with our nutritionist and kind of evaluate the diets and decide, you know, are there any changes we need to make, um, you know, because the, the goal is to always make sure the, the pigs have a feed that meets all of their nutritional needs because, obviously, if the pigs are, are growing well, um, then that, that helps us, and it's obviously good for the pigs, too, because it means that all their needs are being met, and and they're happy and content and, and growing growing well. 
So do you mean that you're not going out and feeding your pigs table slop? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, in many places, that's uh, now illegal to do. But that that kind of myth still persists of you know slopping the hogs and things like that. And really, that's not ideal for the pigs. Um, it's it's much better to give them uh, more of a balanced diet that that's designed to meet their nutritional needs. That's one thing that most people in the United States have moved away from that because they've recognized that puts the pigs at risk uh, from getting sick. And and in the end. Uh, even though it's, you know, you could say that it's free, um, really, um, you're not coming out ahead because it's the pigs aren't going to grow as well as they do if, if you give them the right kind of diet that they need. And that could tie back into sustainability too, right? They're going to be more efficient growers. They're going to drink less water. Exactly, exactly. And that's that's why, you know, getting, getting pigs um, to be happy and to grow well is really important for sustainability because... The faster that they grow, the the less resources they use. That's really one of our one of our major goals is to really do more with less. And really, pig farmers have made huge strides over the last 50 years. Um, we greatly reduced the amount of land that we need, the amount of water that we use. Um, we've really done a good job of getting much more efficient and making better use of the resources that that go into raising hogs. So to switch gears a little bit, let's talk a little bit about education now. Can you talk about in 30 years, what are you going to need from students today? The future is very bright for agriculture. Um, there's a lot of challenges facing facing agriculture. We're being asked to, to produce more and have a smaller impact on the environment. Um, but where there are challenges, there are also opportunities. And I think students who are interested in taking on big challenges, I think we'll have have plenty of interesting things to work on in in ag. I think everyone really needs to have just a basic understanding of where their food comes from in order to be able to just make informed choices for themselves. Beyond that, when a student is considering, you know, different industries that they could go to work in, everybody needs to eat. And that's why agriculture will continue to be a very exciting field to work in because uh, eating is not going to go out of style. Uh, everyone is going to need to continue to eat and and we're going to have more and more people that need to eat and and as as the rest of the world um, becomes more affluent um, they're going to want to improve their diets and and we're going to be asked to to provide more more and more food to people with fewer and fewer resources. It's going to be an exciting time to be in agriculture for the foreseeable future because these challenges of, of providing um, affordable food um, to, to a growing population are, are not going to go away. Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Um, you know, uh, I've, I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to, to do a couple different things that I really enjoy. You know, I spent, I spent um, time off the farm doing research, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and never was able to completely get farming uh, out of my system. And, and, you know, some of it is the lifestyle to some degree. Um, you know, it is, it is a, farming is, is much more than a job. It also becomes a bit of a lifestyle, too. I've never been able to get the same satisfaction as I do from raising a healthy animal, growing a, a, a successful crop. Um, you know, there there are a lot of challenges associated with that, 
but it's very, very rewarding when you can see, you know, the animals that you work with thrive, the crops that you're growing do well. Um, you know, sometimes it's out of your hands, but um, there's always things you can do to improve. What is the best part of your job and the worst part of your job? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, it's hard to narrow down one thing that would be the best part of my job. I think right now, right now the thing I like most about my job is um, getting to work with my family and work together on something that's not, not an opportunity that a lot of people get. Um, you know, and I get I get to work every day with my dad, my cousins, my uncle, um, and that that can be sometimes that can be the best and the worst thing <laughs> about farming. But uh, no, my kids are getting older now, and and they're able to do more on the farm, and being able to work with them and try to pass on um, some of the traditions on our farm to them uh, is also very rewarding. The worst things are just having to deal with things that are out of your control. Like the weather this year was not good at all. And you know, it's frustrating um, because there's not much you can do about it, but um, you know, there's lessons that you can learn and there are things that you can do to try to make your farm more resilient in the future. Mike talked about with sustainability there goes really well with what Beth is teaching her social studies students. Beth was our Excellence in Teaching About Agriculture award winner last year, and she uses the Journey 2050 online gaming platform and accompanying curriculum to teach about global food systems and sustainability. So here's more from Beth. Beth Lofbaum, I teach at Bettendorf Middle School. This is my 16th year teaching at this middle school, and this is my third year in seventh grade. My prior years were in sixth grade social studies. How do you see agriculture connecting to that? Um, it's incredibly ingrained in that. So with the new social standards, we have integrated, a, well, they have integrated a lot of um, global issues. Mm-hmm. And not just global, but we break that down to sta- uh, United States, Iowa, and then our community. Mm-hmm. And through, there's probably like 12 of the global issues that we have these booklets for and that we try to really dive into about six of them. Mm-hmm. One of them is we start with population growth. And what the population growth tells us is the way to solve that is to fix poverty. And the way to fix poverty is to feed people. So when we think about how agriculture and feeding people applies, it is, it's ingrained in everything. When you look at why would world wars get fought? Well, it's, you're going to break down and find that feeding its people was a cause in almost every war. Mm-hmm. Not maybe the root cause, but it's an, an additional cause. So I think agriculture has a fundamental tie to everything in history. Mm-hmm. So do you have background in agriculture, or how did you come across agriculture no. as part of this? Um, so, well, I actually grew up on a farm, but it's kind of funny because my dad had three girls, and we never did any farm things. Like, we weren't even allowed to mow the lawn. <laughs> um, I did drive a combine a couple of times, and I did drive a tractor a couple of times, but I think he was just afraid we would mess it up. <laughs> so I wouldn't say that's my connection. Um, let's see, about four summers ago? Um, Three or four summers ago, we had a social studies conference um, here in Iowa, um, and Cindy Hall was one of the, she did one of the breakout sessions. Mm -hmm. To give you some background, Cindy Hall is our education program manager with the Iowa Agricultural Literacy Foundation. She presents regularly at teacher conferences and oftentimes uses an example of land use uh, by cutting up an apple to show how much of the earth's surface you can use to grow food. Beth remembers this, and we'll mention it later. And it was just enamored by, I mean, all of my colleagues from my middle school were just enamored by 
you know, the Apple example and how we got to feed people. And we're like, well, this, this is going to hit our standards. We, we got to use this. So then we just came back and that was, yeah, it had to be four years ago because then it was followed by my first year in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. So then um, we just tied it in. We're like, this is perfect. Plus, mm-hmm. we wanted students in Iowa to be proud of living in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So, so why did you become an educator? Oh, that's a great question because it's funny because I just had a student in my classroom um, yesterday. He likes to come in and hang out instead of go to gym. Mm. So he'll ask me <laughs> questions and I'll say, you got to go to gym. He goes, why did you become a teacher? Did you always want to be a teacher? And I said, no, I didn't always want to be a teacher. I thought for sure I would be the CEO of Macy's mm. and I would go to the Thanksgiving Day parades. And, and then I, I worked for a bank for a lot of years and I had to do these training sessions at all, once a month that I had meetings once a month at the six offices. And so we started this new incentive program and I had to bring everybody in and train them. I'm like in groups of 20 and I'm like, man, I love learning something new. And I love showing people um, how to make their life easier, their job easier or learn something. I'm like, man, I love this learning and, and sharing knowledge kind of thing. I think I might want to be a teacher because I knew I didn't want to work for the bank anymore because I had was getting ready to have my first child and and then I had really quickly had my second one. I'm like, no, I really want to learn more. Mm-hmm. So I thought if I could share that, hey, you know what? School isn't boring. It's not a prison. Mm-hmm. And history is actually interesting that mm-hmm. I want to do that. So Very cool. Mm-hmm. So where did you go for uh, training or what was your education background? Um, I went to the Ohio State University for two years. I have a bachelor's from there. And then I finished at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio with my bachelor's and I'm currently working on my master's at the university or through the University of Missouri. I'm not going to Missouri. <laughs> it's all online. Cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about how agriculture fits in really well to standards. Why do you take that extra initiative to use food and agriculture in your classroom? Um, I think one of the things that really stand out to me with that question is um, Cindy said in the very first time she came and did 2050, mm-hmm. um, she was like, there are so many avenues in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I think most of my students think it's the person raising the cows, the pigs, the you know, the livestock and planting the crops and, and you know, doing that. But there's so many more aspects. And I think kids are like, okay, if you don't wanna, you know, work the land and raise animals, you could do you could be a part of this. And again, I really push to them that the agriculture is really the key to solving a lot of the world's problems. We can't tackle any other world problem until we tackle poverty. We have to make sure people are fed. So when I start this off, I'm like, what is the greatest invention of all time? And of course, the the first thing they say is, my cell phone. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no. You know, then we go through the wheel, the airplane, Xbox. Mm -hmm. And I finally go, I'm like, okay, grab onto your seat. This is really life shattering. And then I'm like, it's agriculture. And they're so let down. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, what? And I, I go, wait a minute. Okay, let's take agriculture out of your life. And then there's silence. So then we just start building building that back up. And they build it up through, they're shocked to see that they had food, food deserts, that some of them live in food deserts. And they never even realized it. So when we think about, hey, can you just take a tomato plant home? Just one thing to have something fresh at your house. Okay, and that's why I, we're gonna, we switched it to spring this year, food supply so that we can send kids home with at least a little a little plant of something to hopefully click with it. Interesting. 
Are all of your classes social studies, or do you have different courses that fit it under that umbrella? Well, I teach six classes of social studies, so I have okay. about 154 kids this year. But one of the things we try to do is cross-curricular activities. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll pull in language arts, or science is a really big one. But what we're finding is it's really hard to do that as everyone's standards are, you know, like as long as my arm. And they have such limited time that I feel like I don't, I don't want to stress another teacher's schedule so if I can do it if I can take it on we try to do as much in my room as possible we were talking about social studies just kind of in general not too long ago we went to the social studies teachers conference Mm -hmm. and every time I go to something like that it kind of blows my mind with science it's it seems like it's very cut and dry like things are science and things are not science Mm -hmm. but with social studies it's kind of everything else <laughs> it is. it's how to be a citizen it's how to vote it's it's all of the history and everything else so it really does encompass a lot of what agriculture is mm-hmm. I think and well I tell students at the beginning of the year because uh, one of the very first questions on the first day is so how many of you like history social studies you know very few hands go up and I used to do this assignment where parents um, I had parents do homework and they, I'd ask them, what did you think of social studies? What did you like? Almost all of them. I would say, well, 75% didn't like it. And I say, well, if you realize you can't have science without history, you can't have history without science. You can't have math without history. But math decodes history. I mean, I, so they're, they're all so intertwined that you can't just break it apart. But if you find the common thread, mm-hmm. the common thread is social studies. Why is agriculture important, and how do you see agriculture helping us achieve curricular goals? Oh, it's great for uh, for the standards, for one thing. And I, I really love opening kids' minds up to, okay, you know what, we're not just going to sit and talk about this person these days, this war. Um, I was super excited to learn at the um, Arkansas conference that car companies are taking plant-based and, and agriculture to figure out how to make things in their car. And the only one successful with it was Ford. So, okay, you know what? You like cars? We can marry cars and agriculture. Mm-hmm. And that could be your career. You know what? You like, I don't know, building things. How do you sustain the land? How do you work with water runoff? How do you not gobble up farmland? Where's the best place to build? I think anything that kids want to do, we can marry it with at least being cognizant of how's the agricultural effect? You know, we still got to feed people. Um, I read an article not too long ago that said we're not going to hit 11 million by 2050. We're going to hit 11 or billion by 2030. That's 20 years earlier. And I'm like, oh man, the more people we can bring in and get involved in, and how to make sure the fundamental need of food is taken care of, mm-hmm. then the rest really can fall into place or should naturally. Mm-hmm. One problem will f- fix the next and fix the next. of Iowans are directly involved in farming, Mm -hmm. but one in five Iowans is employed by agriculture. So that's a huge difference, and that's the people like you're talking about that are helping the construction workers figure out where to build things Mm -hmm. and all of those extra jobs, people building tractors, designing things, agronomists, veterinarians. I mean, there's tons of opportunity. Mm -hmm. When I came up a year ago to meet with with Cindy and and the the board committee, I think, they, were, they did this activity, and this is how you solve one of the problems. And, and you, they had that. This farmer had a, some kind of rodent issue. The lesson Beth is remembering here is dealing with armadillos and their dens in South America, which can sometimes cause problems with human injuries as well as equipment problems. 
This activity is in lesson form on our website, iowaagliteracy.org, as Brazilian armadillos. Check it out there. And they were like, okay, well, why does it want to live here? So when we, in social studies, we talk about why did people migrate here? What drew them? That's that same kind of thinking that as they become adults and get a job, that they problem solve this. Okay, well, is there food and shelter and there's something they want there? So let's figure out what these critters want here and let's find it somewhere else. I mean, so it's those, those same skills that they're going to use that they can apply to multiple areas. So mm-hmm. problem solving. Yeah. And, and problem solving through agriculture and in realizing that you have to meet people's basic needs. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't need a cell phone and a car if they don't have food to eat. Mm-hmm. So we got to figure out all that stuff too. So you mentioned that you went to the National Agriculture in the Classroom Conference. Do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that experience? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. Um, I went in kind of not knowing what to expect. I mean, I always feel like national conferences are, you get the best content. So I was super excited to be able to go. Um, I think I walked around going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to make butter. I, I heard some phenomenal speakers. I'm like, I know butter, making butter is kind of elementary. But when kids see that tie and like, hey, I made butter today. Or um, where I found some great ways to, to hook kids and bring them in and get them excited and participating. Like, I really want to do the necklace where they put the seed and the water mm-hmm. pellets in there and see if it grows. And Making butter and germinating seeds in a plastic bag to wear as a necklace are both included in lesson plans that are on the National Agriculture in the Classroom website. To learn more about these lessons and find hundreds of other ag-related lesson plans, visit www.agclassroom.org. And then the car company, Ford, working with stuff in the car, um, met some wonderful people. Uh, I I really was blown away, Uh, especially because I didn't know what kind to expect. I'm like, okay, are we going to talk about crop growing all the time? Uh, No. How to make agriculture work in the curriculum. But I really, really enjoyed the conference and took a lot home with me to use in my classroom. That's good to hear. What changes in your classroom when you use food and agriculture? How do students respond to that? Um, I I love this. They are amazed. Before food deserts, we do food waste. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about, think about how much is wasted in any given lunch at Bettendorf Middle School. You know, think about what you're throwing away. You know, I tell them when I was in school, which for them they think is 100 years ago, we had to go show our teachers our plate. And if we didn't eat enough, we had to go back and sit down and eat more until they thought that we had eaten enough vegetables, enough fruit, enough everything. Now, they have to take it. You know, they have to have a fruit and vegetable because the state of Iowa says they do. But they throw it away once they get it. So I'm like, okay, think about the waste. I show this video about farmers that say over half is, is not even going to the grocery. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about, it's um, a book called, I think it's called The Hungry Planet. And we go through there and we look at what schools eat all over the world. And they're amazed that there are schools like in France. They have real plates. They get cheesecake. They have real salt and pepper shakers. They don't have processed out of a packaged food. So then they start thinking about their food. Hey. I want lunch like that. So I guess I could admit to secretly trying to build a rebellion <laughs> on food. And I, I've planted the seed every year, but they've not jumped on board with it yet. I'm like, you guys, do you think our lunches are okay? Do you think we should have pizza every day? I'm waiting, you know, and I can't make them do it. It has to be a passionate buy-in. Mm-hmm. I really want a, at least one class to go, let's talk about how we can have better food here. 
But because the standards have been really about being aware of global things and decision making and how you can participate, not just as a citizen, you know, with civic responsibilities, but just as a person. And, and part of that comes into all the other aspects of my speaking skills, my communicating skills. But I think agriculture just ties into what decisions do people make regarding their money? Mm-hmm. You know, something we talk about advertising, and we talk about countries spending money on their people. We talk about human rights. Well, if this country isn't feeding their people, they're not spending enough in agriculture. And they have, you know, 60% poverty where people live on $9 a month for a family of five. Then we got to talk about it. And they're, they're amazed by that. Mm-hmm. They're just blown out of the water. Can you talk a little bit about your Journey 2050 program and how you've incorporated that into your curriculum? We build up, you know, kind of front load a little bit of agriculture so that there's, there's a, a little deeper buy-in by the time um, we get 2050 here. And... I love the talk because they share so much of the bigger picture of agriculture. So in the Quad Cities, you know, it's like John Deere's headquarters. Um, I would say a lot of students know somebody or their parent works for John Deere. So they think, you know, it's just just tractors and combines. Um, But with Journey 2050, it brings in a lot of these other elements to, hey, you know what, farmers have to decide you know, the price when they're buying seed and planting crops and then, okay, are you making money? Are you going to reinvest in your materials to farm? Are you going to save? Are you going to buy this or that? Um, and I found that after the 2050, when we tried it, when we moved on to a couple of other things in the project, they're like, can we have time to go back and do the 2050 thing? Uh, can we go back and, hey, I had a hundred thousand dollars in, in my savings account. I want to go back and, I mean, they just were really hooked into making decisions and trying to see where it took them. Is there a specific unit that you fit that into? We fit that in food supply. Okay. And we use a, a nice transition of, you know, we'll start with, um, we just, we're just finishing human rights, which we don't usually do right now, but we usually try to follow that after World War II. But we start with population growth and then we would have done food supply. Because we talked about, here's all these numbers, here's problems with population growth, and now we, we got to feed people. But we do have a unit. It's about three weeks long, I would say. Um, I w- one of the areas of 2050 that I have not um, spent enough time on and I know would bring more interest in the other facets of agriculture is that where it talks about careers. Mm-hmm. Because when Cindy came, she did tell them about that. Mm-hmm. But then we can interject. We can interject a lot more once they get through that. Yeah. And for those of you at home, if you're not familiar with Journey 2050, uh, this is a online gaming platform that can be done either online or through an app, and it, it has multiple levels to teach about sustainability. And the, the, the thing it really tries to get across is that sustainability kind of has three prongs, environmental, social, and economical. So the farmer has to make money while also t- taking care of the land, and they also need to have roads and hospitals and things like that. So students are learning about uh, nutrient management, water management, land use and then there's also a careers aspect and they're they're adding on more levels too now to for awesome. more civic things outside of the gaming platform so it's it continues to grow but you can find more information about that at journey2050.com and it's a game it is a game it's a, a, like a video game and, and what are kids hooked into every single day mm-hmm. so and it's not something to read they participate and that's what I love they're doing it Mm-hmm. And it's right in their wheelhouse, you know, electronics and games. So there's nice buy-in. They're super interested. 
Yeah, we've noticed that a lot. We've done a lot of training with with teachers and educators and adults, and we tend to be more nervous about it. Like mm-hmm. we don't want to push the wrong button and end the world. But kids never worry about that. They just yeah. poke around and play and figure it out. So it's it's really intuitive for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why have you chosen these activities for your classroom? Well, the first uh, thing that comes to mind is it brings awareness. Um, it's such an important issue. And, and the earlier we can start them thinking about it, you know, the more they're aware of it and they become thinkers. You know, they're thinking, how do I solve this? Um, what can I do? Or at least maybe I'm going to turn the water off while I brush my teeth mm-hmm. instead of let the water run. Um, it's really hard in America to think, um, even kids that struggle are 16 times higher than the lowest poverty rate when we look worldwide. And when I say that to kids, they're like, oh, no, I'm, I know I'm in the lowest poverty rate. I'm like, you're, you're 16 times higher than what people are living with out there. And that they're amazed. So the, I think the sooner we can get them hooked into it, more aspects we can show them something new. Hey, let's talk about agriculture. You know, let, let's bring in more than just, like I said, histories and, you know, the wars and stuff like that. Um, it's fresh. It's it's different. It takes their, their thinking in a different direction. So hopefully it keeps them from being stale and bored and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. What's your favorite aspect of, of using these activities? The, the idea is part of the project, kids have to come up with two self-generated questions after they've done their, the summative assessment aspect. And their thinking is amazing to me. Because they're like, well, why don't, why don't people do this? Why don't governments do that? Why don't communities do this? I think it's my, my favorite aspect is it gets their wheels turning. And when I read some of their self-generated questions, I'm like, dang, that's good. I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. So then I'm hoping that it, it sparks something. Yeah, they're not just regurgitating dates. Exactly. They're... they're participatory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, we talked about how Journey 2050 has a big sustainability aspect. How else does that tie in with your class? Do you, the do Journey 2050? Or the sustainability piece specifically. Okay. Um, well, we, we, in today's culture, like let's apply it to just what they see in the building. They have um, water bottle recycling. We have paper recycling in every class water recycling in various places in the cafeteria. So when we relate that to sustainability, it's see it, practice it, do it. Then we throw in see it, practice it, learn more about it, do it. Mm -hmm. So it's not just sustaining about plastic cup or plastic bottles, but it's, oh my gosh, the land and how are we going to keep it growing crops? And so I think it just takes that seed of sustainability and amplifies it. And then they see how it's not just... It's not just cake. It's not simple to plant crops successfully and grow livestock successfully. There's all these aspects to it. So a new appreciation, too, for, for farming and the ag business in general. Can you tell me the best and worst parts about your job? The best parts are um, the connections you make with students, the relationships you build with students, and then just seeing the light bulb go. And then just the kid that never talks you know, raises his hand or her hand and has this comment, and you're like, that is awesome. That is amazing. I think just their thinking, mm-hmm. and when you, when you see them get it or, you know, roll through some education that they really struggled with and they come out on the other side successful, uh, the worst part, the bureaucracy of it, is, is uh, 
is really wearing down. I think teachers in general you know, throw on 50 more things onto the plate. And what that means is I have this much less time to spend on students, with students, calling home, pulling a kid in from study hall to say, hey, you know what, I noticed you're struggling. Let's sit down and work on it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And that just makes it that much harder to do the, the cool new things, developing exactly. new units that can engage them. Yeah, one of the things I love about my district, and, and I'm sure it's district-wide, but I know in my building it's especially true, is um, we have freedom to, to try things that we want to do. As long as you're hitting these standards, you can hit it however you want. So we're not dictated to, like I know other places in the, in the country are, which is a great privilege. My whole message to get across from the privilege of doing this podcast is there is such depth and interest and applicability of agriculture. And I love Journey 2050. If I could just say, teachers, please use it. And middle school is, please don't think that they're not cherubs. <laughs> I was trying to think of a word that I could say. Um, they need, they need more of this. They just need it. Because we need more kids to find an avenue that interests them mm-hmm. as well. So. Use it. Put it in there. Yeah. Middle school does kind of seem like the time where either students gain interest or something or lose interest in something. Exactly. And you want to keep them engaged and, and get them excited, especially once they get to high school and they'll have access to vocational classes and mm-hmm. things like that. It, start them getting interested in it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, the middle school is like the middle child. You know, mm-hmm. the older one gets a lot of attention. The younger one is doing the younger one stuff. So that elementary and high school. And I always always felt like why did I want to be a middle school teacher because it's the hardest age to be because I feel like they they're the middle child they kind of get left out a lot so let's not leave them out Mm -hmm. I like that the same day as Beth's interview she also gave a keynote speech at the statewide agriculture in the classroom conference here in Iowa here are a couple of highlights from that speech this next part really hooks them is on food deserts and they realize some of them live in a food desert, a mile or two miles where you don't have access to healthy food, but they have access to convenient food. So then they really start thinking about their food, we get them hooked on where it's coming from, what if it runs out, they read about other countries, what they're doing for food, what's happening, Um, and they're global, so none of them are the United States. So you find the resources, uh, the teacher, I find resources to bring in the United States, which totally uh, perturbs them. They think we don't have any problems here. And then they realize they do. Um, and they think, you know, we, of course we have kids that are really struggling financially. And they think they're the poorest of the poor. Well, when we get to population growth and they realize that even the low in America is 16 times higher than the world average for poverty, they're like, oh, man, I thought I had a bad. So then we go back again to addressing, hey, we gotta solve these problems, so we gotta feed people first. Food supply and agriculture, and what we do in it, will hit probably seven or eight standards. It's not mastery of seven or eight standards, but it is introduction and teaching of those. At some of them will be mastered. One of the things that really pulled them in was when Cindy came and did the Journey 2050. I love that in her talk, she talked about other jobs for agriculture. It's not just driving the tractor and, you know, raising the cattle. And I don't mean just driving the tractor. 
we live in John Deere country. You know, I'm from Bettendorf. John Deere headquarters right across the street. You know, a ton of parents um, of my students work for John Deere. It's a great way to tie in, hey, it's not just making equipment. They have a facility where, so that they're trying to see how easy is it for farmers to determine a problem with our equipment. So let's say I work for them and I'm picking my corn and my combine shuts down. I, I gotta hop off and figure out what's going on. I'm like, hey, that could be your job. You could figure out how to fix combines or how to make combines go wrong for John, for John Deere so that somebody can fix it. So I wanna interject a ton of different things about it. Um, and I tell them, hey, if farmers and teachers stopped doing what they do, nations would fall apart. I hope you enjoyed hearing from these folks about pigs and sustainability today. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, all spelled out, our website and our Facebook page. For more information on the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, visit www.iowaagliteracy.org. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.